you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. If you're a guest with us, we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew. We've come to one of the most famous sections in this Gospel, the Olivet Discourse. And a few weeks ago, we began the introduction to it, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 4 this morning. And I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject today, Truths for Present Times, Matthew chapter 24, and we'll begin reading in verse number 4. And this is what the Word of God says. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle described this first section of Jesus' Olivet Discourse as truths for present times. And this title is fitting because the descriptions and instructions that Jesus gives his disciples in these verses are applicable to every generation. For Mark, in his account of this passage, records in Mark 13.37 that the instructions Jesus gives to his disciples, he says to all so that they all would stay awake. And while Jesus was preparing his disciples at this time for Jerusalem's destruction, he was simultaneously preparing them as well as his disciples in all times for his return. For the events that Jesus describes in this first section of his discourse are the normal occurrences of the age between his first coming and his second coming. Every century has known false Christs, wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, and persecution. And as a result, Jesus intends for his followers to walk away from this text prepared for what will take place before his return. Now, the central message of Christ's discourse is a twofold admonition. First, Jesus is warning that before he returns, the world will become more and more hostile to God and to his people. And second, he is urging people to be prepared for his coming, 
and for the judgments that are associated with it. And these two themes dominate the whole discourse. Now Christ begins his discourse with a list of calamities that he likens to the labor pains that precede childbirth. The afflictions Christ delineates here are indeed like birth pains. At first, they are relatively mild and infrequent, but then they come in relentless waves, faster and harder, as the time of delivery approaches. And though many of these disasters in varying degrees are present in our world now, and though they seem to be growing steadily worse and even more prevalent, just like labor pains, the end is not yet. For the afflictions that Christ outlines here closely parallel the judgments that John describes in Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 16, where an unprecedented time of affliction will culminate in the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus described this error as a time of great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no, and never will be. And when Christ finally returns at the end of those days of tribulation, no one will miss his coming, and no enemy will escape his retribution. As the great preacher Adrian Rogers said, this world is going to God. For the world in which you and I live this very moment is ripe for tribulation. Birth pains are already being felt. And while the present distresses may be premature labor pains, they nonetheless signify that the time for hard labor is rapidly approaching. And in light of the truths of this present time, Jesus gives us four reminders as he calls his disciples to remain faithful and to endure to the end of their lives. Would you notice with me, first of all, in verses 4 and 5, that Jesus says, do not be deceived. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. If there's one theme that dominates the Olivet Discourse, it's the word deception. And this word can literally be translated to mean to cause to stray, to cause to leave. And you'll notice in verse 5 that Jesus reveals this danger of deception saying, For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Luke, in his account, records Jesus saying, For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. And then listen to what Jesus said at the end of that statement. Do not go after them. Do not be deceived by them. And with these words, Jesus is specifically warning his disciples and us about the danger of false Christs. There were false Christs or Messiahs before Jesus' time. And there have been false Christs at various other times throughout history, including many in our own day. 
But Jesus is teaching us in this text, as we approach his second coming, the number and the influence of false Christ will increase dramatically. And you'll notice in verse 5 that Jesus says that they will come in his name and they will seek to usurp his title and his authority through their deception. Now John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, expanded Jesus' message in these verses by warning the believers of his day that false Christs have already appeared. And this is what he wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And friends, these false Christs, these antichrists, they counterfeit Christ. And they twist and they tweak Christ's message. They diminish his deity. They degrade the value of his sacrifice on the cross. And they offer substitutes for the truth instead of the substance of the truth. And it's rampant even in our current day. We see these false gospels and we see these false Christs through political movements, through social activism and socialist causes, and through prosperity preaching. There is no shortage of false Christs, false teachers, and false gospels. And that's why Jesus' warning is so important to us this morning. As Jesus stated, many have been led astray. Many are being led astray. And many will be led astray. And the epitome of this false group will be the Antichrist himself, the ultimate false messiah and deceiver. And just as Jesus Christ was righteousness incarnate, the Antichrist will be evil incarnate. In the book of Daniel, he is called the insolent king, skilled in intrigue, a self-willed tyrant who magnifies himself above every god and speaks monstrous evil against the one true and living God. The apostle Paul called him the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction. And in the book of Revelation, he is simply called the beast. And it is significant that as Jesus begins his final discourse in the gospel of Matthew, he begins with this subject and he shows us the seriousness of the threat of deception, the seriousness of the threat of false Christ and false gospels by saying many, many will be led astray. There is a real danger of being deceived. But you'll notice in the text that Jesus doesn't just warn his disciples about being deceived. In verse number four, he tells them how to avoid being deceived, saying, see that no one leads you astray. 
the phrase see that can literally be translated keep your eyes open. Don't be gullible. Test those who claim to speak for God. Exercise godly discernment and wisdom to keep yourself from being deceived. And that's why you should always bring your Bible to church, no matter who is preaching, so that you can see for yourselves whether what is being proclaimed mirrors the very Word of God. Keep your eyes open. Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. Don't be taken in by false gospels and false Christs. Years after the fall of Jerusalem, the Apostle John wrote and provided similar counsel. And in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1, this is his instruction. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Test the spirits. Use discernment. Use wisdom. Keep your eyes open. Stay awake. Don't be naive. Don't be deceived. For in every generation, especially in times of distress, false teachers appear providing false comfort and false hope. The prosperity gospel, which is a false gospel, says that if you have enough faith, everything will be well in your life. And can I just pause for a moment and just insert, is that the testimony of your life? That if you just believe, and you believe enough that everything's good? There's no room in that kind of theology for suffering and the purposes of God. And it does not square with the Bible. It's a false gospel. The liberal gospel says all religions are equal. You just have to believe in something and be sincere. And whatever you believe in, that will take you to heaven. And friends, that has consumed our culture. You can believe anything you want except saying that Jesus Christ is the exclusive way to heaven. We're surrounded by deception. We are surrounded by false teachers. And false gospels. And as we move closer and closer to the return of Christ, this deception will only increase. And so I say to you today, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, do not be deceived. There is only one Christ. God's Son, who left heaven to be born of a virgin, to identify with all of us in our temptations, but who is the only one who never gave in to temptation and lived a sinless, perfect life. This Christ took your place and my place on a Roman cross. This Christ bore the wrath of God for your sins. This Christ died in your place. This Christ rose from the grave. This Christ ascended to heaven. And this Christ makes intercession for you right now if you belong to Him. And this Christ one day soon will come back for His people. This Christ is the only one who could say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Only this Christ 
can set you free from your sins and give you true and complete forgiveness. Only this Christ can satisfy the deepest needs of your life. Only this Christ can give you hope for today and hope for the future. Only this Christ can give you rest for your soul. Do not be deceived. There is only one Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask you today, do you know Him? Do you know this Christ? Well, Jesus not only reminds us not to be deceived, He also reminds us not to be dismayed in verses 6 through 8. And he says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now notice in verse 6 how he begins this section of his discourse. He begins it with the phrase, you will hear. And the verb tense suggests continual action. So that it could literally be translated, you will be hearing. You will continue to hear. In other words, there will be constant talk of actual wars and of rumors of wars to the degree that the world has ever known. And in verse 6 through the beginning of verse 7, and Jesus, with these words, is not predicting a specific war or conflict. Rather, he is describing the general tone of the world as it approaches the end. And following the analogy of birth pains, the implication is that the conflicts will increase both in frequency and in intensity as the return of Christ approaches. And in the end... Human warfare will be intensified and caught up into the final conflict between Christ and the forces of Satan. Then, the very God whose sovereign will wars occur will cause wars to cease to the end of the earth and He will usher in righteousness and justice and peace forevermore. Now notice in verse 6, with all this talk of conflict, Jesus commands His disciples and us to see that we are not alarmed. You'll hear of wars. You'll hear of rumors of wars. You'll hear of conflict. Do not be alarmed. Luke, in his account of this section, in Luke 21 verse 9 records Jesus' words this way. And when you hear of wars and tumults, listen, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. See that you are not alarmed. Do not be terrified. It is present tense language, friends. And you say, well, what, what is so important about that? Well, it's an imperative. And it means that it should be replied repeatedly. So, tomorrow when you turn on the news and you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be terrified. Do not be alarmed. 
Friday, when you turn on the news after a long week and you're worn out and you're susceptible to discouragement and despair, do not be alarmed and do not be terrified. See to it that you're not allowing these things to take place in your life. And you say, why? Why should I not be alarmed? Why should I not be terrified about the events of the world and the events that are yet to come? Because of what Jesus says in this verse. Do you see it? For these things must take place. But the end is not yet. Friends, wars and rumors of wars must take place because of the sinfulness of humanity. They must take place because of God's sovereign purposes in the history of the world. And they must take place because of God's providential working in the affairs of man. They must take place. They can't be avoided. And at the end of verse 7, Jesus moves from describing global disputes to describing global disasters, saying there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all of these disasters and all of these disagreements will find their ultimate fulfillment and completion in Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 16, through the breaking of the seal judgments, the sounding of the trumpet judgments, and the outpouring of the bowls of God's wrath on the world. And when you study Jesus' words in verses 6 and 7, they take on an even deeper meaning when you place them beside of the Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 8 as he references this birth pain analogy and relates it to creation. As creation longs and groans To be set free from the curse of sin. And this is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 verses 20 to 22. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly. But because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Until now, just as you groan when you hear of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and disasters and famines, creation groans. Creation has been groaning since the curse in Genesis chapter 3. And one day, God promises that there will be a new heaven and a new earth where the curse will be no more. And as these wars and rumors of wars and these global disasters take place, you can imagine creation groaning and longing for that day just as you do. And friends, all of these events that Jesus references were familiar to first century Christians. And they're familiar to us. We are not immune to tribulation in this life. Not one of us. And Jesus tells us in this text to expect these things. Not so that you can get out your prophetic calendar and pinpoint a date for his coming because of the latest war or skirmish in the world or because of the latest earthquake or famine. 
No, he is giving us this instruction so that you and I will be reminded how we are to live and what we are to prepare for in this fallen world. Doctrine, even prophecy, eschatological doctrine is always for life. It is always for living. It is not for your charts. It's for your soul. It's for your spirit. Because you can get every sequence of event right and bypass your heart and your soul. And as believers, Jesus tells us that we should not be dismayed as we see these events progressing. Because there are evidences that God's plan is unfolding. And they remind us that the world is moving closer and closer to the return of Christ. And they mark the beginning of the end. And so I exhort you, with all the encouragement I can muster this morning as your pastor, to remember that just as birth pains lead to something glorious, the birth of a child, these disasters... These global conflicts, too, are birth pains. And they also lead to something glorious. The return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So do not be dismayed. Don't be deceived. Don't be dismayed. Third, he reminds us to not defect. Verses 9 to 13. Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and they'll put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When you study these words carefully, and I had planned to show them to you in detail, but the sermon became too long and they got cut on the chopping block. They are similar to a warning that Jesus had already given his disciples back in Matthew chapter 10, verses 17 to 22. In some places, they are almost verbatim, word for word. And notice how he begins this section in verse 9. He begins it with the word then. And the significance of this word is he is connecting everything he has said in verses 4 through 8 with everything that he is about to say in verses 9 to 13, meaning that these descriptions that he's given in these verses are a continuation of the birth pains that he has been describing. So in verse 9, Jesus prepares his followers for suffering, declaring with certainty that they will be delivered up to tribulation and put to death, and they will be hated by all nations. Now, religious persecution has been an aspect of the Christian life from the very beginning. You can go back into the book of Acts, and you can see that the persecution of Christians began shortly after the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when Stephen and James were slain and the disciples were scattered. And then in the ensuing centuries, Christians have been thrown to lions. They've been burned as human torches. They've been mangled by wild beasts. 
They've been killed by gladiators. They've been martyred in numerous ways. And Jesus says, as the time gets closer and closer to his return, these martyrdoms will increase. Persecution will increase. And look at the phrase he uses. Will deliver. It has the basic meaning of giving over, and it's used to be arrested or to confined. And in their parallel accounts, Mark and Luke give even greater description of what Jesus is talking about. Here's how Mark describes it in Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Luke, in Luke chapter 21, verses 12 to 15, describes it this way. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. In the context of the disciples' day, the councils probably represented the Gentile authority, and the synagogues represented the Jewish authority. Jesus was saying they would be hated by everybody, persecuted by everyone. And as the times move closer and closer to the return of Christ, it will cost us something to be a Christian. There will be persecution. And notice, Jesus says at the end of verse 9 that this persecution... Oh, this is important, friends. I would underline it in your Bible if it were me. It will happen for his namesake. It'll happen because you name the name of Christ. It'll happen because of the glory of Christ. One commentator described this phrase this way. He said the persecution will not be directed so much against believers themselves as against God, whom they serve and represent. The unbelieving world will intensify its hatred of God. And because it cannot attack God, it will fiercely attack God's people. There will be persecution. Then in verse 10, under the pressure of the events of verse 9, Jesus says that many who profess to be believers will fall away. In the parable of the soils, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus taught his disciples that persecution will sift out true Christians from false Christians. He said in Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 to 21, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on the count of the word, immediately he falls away. Jesus predicted it. Persecution will sift the church between true and false Christians. John declares that those who fall away leave Christian fellowship. Listen, friends, because they were never really a part of it to begin with. 
1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. People abandoned Christ's visible church because they were never a part of His invisible church. They forsake the family of God because they were never born into the family of God. And a person who turns their back on Jesus and refuses to suffer for His namesake was never a true believer to begin with. You can mark this down, friends. True believers will not defect. True believers will never reject Christ. They might disobey Him, but they will never flat reject Him. They reject Him because they never knew Him. Moreover, in verse 10, Jesus says, Many so-called believers will betray one another and hate one another. They won't just defect and leave the church. They'll betray their brothers and sisters in Christ. They will join in the persecution of the church. They will even persecute their own family members. Mark describes it this way in Mark 13, 12. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Luke 21, 16. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. And you say, how could that be? How could family members turn on one another? And I would say to you this morning, you're already seeing it take place. You're seeing it in the new sexual revolution that is taking place, in the transgender movement, in the rise of homosexuality, where teenagers and college students and young children are turning their backs on how their parents are raising them and directing them and teaching them and rising up in rebellion against them and rejecting the truth of God. I say to you, if you can't imagine how what is being described in Scripture could ever take place, your eyes are closed even now. The beginning pains of it are happening right before our very eyes. And Jesus is teaching us as we move closer and closer to his return, this will only increase and become more violent and get worse. In verse 11, Jesus says, Many false prophets will arise both within and without the church, and they'll lead many astray. Furthermore, in verse 12, Jesus says, There will be an increase in lawlessness, which will in turn cause the love of many to grow cold. Could you read verse 12 again? And could you apply it? to what we've seen happen over the last three or four years in our world? A total increase of lawlessness that has led to a total dissipation of love. If you'll recall, Jesus summarized the law in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, stating we should love God and we should love people. But Jesus is telling us that as we approach the end, there will be utter lawlessness because people will not love God. And because they are void of the love of God, 
they will be void of love for people. And we will become a loveless society, a loveless world where love has grown cold. I looked and looked to try to find the citation for this quote in my notes as I was studying, and I never could find it. But I'm going to give you the quote anyway. He writes, the overflow of moral boundaries always destroys love. Those who feel they can live without moral boundaries grow hard and callous and cynical. They know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Their lives become an endless quest for new pleasures, new experiences, because that is the drug they use to numb the pain of the meaninglessness in their lives. A direct correlation between increased lawlessness and a void of love for God and a void of love for people. Man's law, God's law, it will all be disregarded and lawlessness will be flaunted, listen, openly and unashamedly everywhere. And again, I say to you, friends, have you watched the news lately? Is not sin being flaunted everywhere? No one blushes about anything anymore. And when a society becomes lawless and cold in love, you know what happens? Everyone sees everyone else as a threat. And that's exactly what began to happen when COVID arrived. We are all threats to one another. Because our love grows cold. And in the midst of this chaos and suffering, look at verse 13. Jesus gives a promise to his followers. And he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Here's my translation of this verse. The one who perseveres to the end of his or her life will be saved. Jesus is teaching the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. He's not teaching salvation by endurance or by any other work. Rather, Jesus is saying that it is salvation by faith in Him. And when you have salvation by faith in Him, endurance is a characteristic and a quality and a proof of that salvation. In other words, the person who belongs to Christ continues to confess Christ, continues to serve Christ, continues to suffer for Christ when it is necessary. The person who belongs to Christ does not endure in their own strength and power. They endure in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit of God that lives inside of them. It is the power of the Spirit of God that enables you to endure. It is the power of the Spirit of God that enables you to persevere. It is not you that persevere. It is not you that endure. It's not you that keep yourself saved. It is God who keeps you saved. It is God who empowers you to persevere. It is God who empowers you to endure. It is the very truth that the Apostle Paul began the book of Philippians with in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is God's promise to his people. That through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will persevere. You will endure. And the work that He started in you at the moment of your salvation, He will absolutely complete in your ultimate glorification when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. 
Neither the high cost of discipleship, nor the deception of false prophets, nor the enticement of sin will cause true believers to deny and renounce Christ. Christ will keep them from defecting. I love Luke's words on verse 13 of Matthew in Luke 21, 18 and 19. But not a hair of your head will perish. And for some like me who can't afford to have one perish, that's encouraging. And he says, by your endurance, you will gain your life. You say to me, Pastor, I don't like it. I understand that. You don't have to like it. It's still truth, whether you like it or not. See, You've bought into the false gospel that you'll never have to suffer. You'll never have to stand for Christ or for the Word. You've bought into the lie that it's all going to be easy sailing for you. And that's why when persecution and hardship and difficulty come in your life, you collapse. Because you've built your life on a faulty theology, a faulty gospel. Jesus told us clearly in Matthew chapter 16 that if anyone would follow him, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow him. It is the cost of discipleship. It is the cost of knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. That you deny yourself and you take up your cross And listen to what Jesus promised in that. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find his life. That's where the hope is. The hope is that in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your hardship, no matter what kind of suffering or hardship you're going through in your life, the hope and the promise is that Jesus will never leave you. Jesus will never forsake you. Jesus will complete the work that he began in you at the moment of your salvation. Not a hair on your head will be harmed. And you will indeed receive your life. That is the promise of the perseverance of the saints. And that is, listen, it is the testimony of the church throughout all of church history. From the earliest apostles and followers of Jesus. And listen to John and his testimony in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19. And I bet you've missed this verse as many times as you've read the book of Revelation. This is what he says in chapter 1 and verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are are in Jesus. Do you hear that? I'm your brother. I'm your partner in tribulation and suffering and hardship and the patient endurance that is in Jesus. Don't you love that? Patient endurance. Oh, you don't love it because none of us love patience. And none of us love endurance. And when you put patience and endurance together, it's a double whammy. You really hate it. But there is endurance in Jesus Christ. Douglas Sean O'Donnell said the gospel demands distance runners. Those who run toward heaven with hardship burning on their heels. Those who patiently pace themselves. 
knowing that momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Well, friends, that's how you run towards heaven. Patient endurance. Pacing yourself. So brothers and sisters in Christ, here's your pastor this morning. Be patient. Endure. Don't quit. Don't defect. And young people, don't deconstruct. It's a lie. Don't be deceived. Finally, he tells us in verse 14 to not be discouraged. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Notice what Jesus is saying in verse 14. He's saying that none of the birth pains of verses 4 through 12 will thwart the advance of his kingdom throughout the world. But rather, they will serve to usher in his return as the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to the nations. Now, there's all kinds of interpretations surrounding this verse. And to the best of my ability in my study, what I think Jesus is referring to is Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, where just before the final bold judgments are poured out, God will supernaturally present the gospel of his kingdom to the whole world. And this is what Revelation 14, 6 and 7 says. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And if I understand those verses correctly, that is the last proclamation of the gospel. That is the last evangelization of the world because the end will come. And you say, well, pastor, how do you get don't be discouraged out of that verse? Well, have you not been tracking with me for the last 40 minutes? Have you not felt the heaviness of verses 4 to 12? Have you not squirmed in your seat a little bit? Sure you have. I saw you do it. It's heavy. It's weighty. You turn on the news. You turn it back off. You turn on the radio. You turn that back off. You have conversations. You walk away more defeated after the conversation than before the conversation because everything feels heavy. Everything feels under a cloud. Everything feels difficult and discouraging and demoralizing. And I say to you today, based on the authority of the Word of God, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. All these things in these verses are true, but in spite of all that is taking place in our world, we should not lose heart and we should not be discouraged. 
In spite of false Christs with false gospels, in spite of wars and rumors of wars, in spite of famines and earthquakes and pestilence, in spite of persecution and defection and lawlessness in a world growing colder by the day, the Lord Jesus Christ will never be without a witness in this world until he comes again. And his kingdom will advance just as he said it would. Isn't it the last promise that he gave his disciples before he ascended to heaven? And lo, I will be with you always to the very end of the age as you preach and proclaim the gospel. Dear friends, in 2,000 years of church history, the church and the kingdom of God have always grown and advanced through persecution and through proclamation. And why do you think that would be any different in our day or the days to come? God's kingdom will advance. His church will grow through persecution and through proclamation. And so I say to you today, as your pastor, do not be discouraged. The end is not yet. Heed the words of the Apostle Paul in his final instructions to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded. You know what a good translation of that is? Keep your head. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. That's it, church. Keep your head. Get it back on straight. There are so many things that take your head. There are so many voices that rattle around inside of you. And sometimes it takes hard, difficult work to weed out the voices and hear the one voice that matters above all. Keep your head. Endure, persevere, don't look for the easy way out. Do hard things and share the gospel. Share it with your life. Share it with your words. Share it with your testimony. Share it in your home. Share it where you work. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill what God has called you to do here on this earth. Don't be discouraged. Christian, don't lose heart. Keep your head. Look up. Stay awake. He's coming again. When these verses Jesus gave his disciples and us truths for present times so they wouldn't be deceived. And these descriptions and instructions he gives us are applicable for us so that we would all hear it and we would all stay awake. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word. We pray today that you would use it in our lives with all of the needs represented in this place today, God. We pray that you would take these truths, you would apply them through your spirit. 
You would lift our souls and our spirits. You, the lifter of our head, that you would lift our heads high, that we would look up and see you in your promises and in your glory and in your word. And we pray, God, that you would help us to stay awake and alert in these days. We pray that you would continue to build your church and your kingdom for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.